Well, let me invite you to uh, turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 15 this morning. And we'll be looking at verses uh, 30 through 41. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 30, and I'll read down through the end of the chapter. As I read this uh, portion of Scripture, as always, we want to uh, keep you mindful that this is the inspired Word of God. It's not the Word of man. So let's read it and uh, hear it with a reverent and obedient heart. So Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 30, this is now after the Jerusalem council and they're taking the letter from their conclusions and they're sending it out. And so we'll pick it up from here, starting in verse 30. So when they were sent away, that would be Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas. When they were sent away, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. And since Dean has given me the good excuse already to have a lengthy message, I just want to let you know that I'm not to blame. After they had spent some time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. And then verse 34 probably should not be in the inspired text, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there, mainly because it seems to contradict verse 33. Verse 35, But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with him also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And may the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Well, we uh, find now that uh, the apostles and the elders in the church at Jerusalem now have written this letter summarizing their their response to the uh, false gospel of the Judaizers, the works-based gospel, the gospel that says to Gentiles, you're not saved until you're circumcised. And they completely refuted that. And so now they're sending a letter to all the churches containing Gentiles to encourage them that they do not have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Salvation is a free gift given to any and every sinner who repents and believes in Jesus Christ. So this letter now is being sent back up to the church at Antioch where Paul and Barnabas had first encountered this false gospel that was causing so much problems. We read that uh, 
They have now gone up to, uh, to Antioch in verse 30. And they have read it to the believers there in the church. Many were Greeks. Many were Jews. And they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Silas and Judas also were prophets. They began to encourage the brethren with a lengthy message, which again just shows that long sermons are biblical. The only problem with a long sermon is sometimes people die in the midst of them. And this happened in Acts 20, literally, when Paul preached that long sermon till midnight, and a guy fell asleep, Eutychus, out of the third floor window, and fell down, and they picked him up dead. So you got to be watch out for those long sermons. They can be deadly. But anyway, they, they apparently had a lot on their heart to share with the church, so they, they encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a long message. And after they had spent some time there, Judas and Silas now go back down to Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, verse 35, teaching and preaching with many others also the Word of the Lord. So you had this uh, wonderful conclusion. Again, the letters being distributed, it's, it's being read, it's being encouraged. Uh, Gentiles are encouraged. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the law of Moses. And they're, they're, they're fully members within the body of Christ with their believing Jewish brethren. And then in verse 36, we read that after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every church in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So Paul initiates what's going to become the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Uh, they had spent a long time in Antioch. If you go back and look at chapter 14, verse 28, they finished up the first missionary journey. They've been a long time in Antioch. They're rested up. Paul's bruises and broken bones from being stoned have probably healed by this time. So now he's ready to go back and go back to all those churches again. He's rested. He's ready. He's He's like a horse pent up and ready to, to have the gates open and launch out again on the track. And this time going around for the second missionary journey. His heart, his, the intended mission is to visit all those churches in the Galatia region where they had been and to see how the churches are doing. They had appointed elders. They wanted to know how are the elders doing? or How's the church doing? And they wanted to go and minister to the spiritual needs of these newly founded churches. So Paul had a real shepherd's heart. He wanted to go and, and uh, minister to those young believers. But a controversy broke out. In verse 37, we read that Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark along with them. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now remember, John Mark had gone with them on the first missionary journey. They had left from Antioch of Syria and gone to Cyprus, the island. They had gone through the whole island preaching the gospel. And then they got to the western part of the island. And, and uh, God in His mercy converted Sergius Paulus, who was the Roman proconsul of the island. And yet they had this, this uh, kind of negative encounter with this false prophet, this magician. 
And when they finally left the island of Cyprus and went north to Asia Minor, the first place they landed, John Mark said, I'm out of here. And he left the team. And he went back to Jerusalem. So there's a big controversy. In fact, in verse 39, Luke says it was a sharp disagreement. And it occurred when John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. You can read that in chapter 13, verse 13. And the word that Luke uses that John Mark left them sometimes has the connotation of deserting people. In fact, it's even a word that's used of soldiers who have been defeated on the battlefield and they leave the field. And that's the word that's used back in chapter 13, verse 13. So here's a big sharp disagreement between Barnabas and, and Paul. Let's think for a moment about the controversy. Let's look at it from the position of Barnabas, first off. Uh, Barnabas' view is let's take John Mark with us again. Now, the background of that, of course, is that John Mark and Barnabas were both members of the Jerusalem church together. Remember, John Mark's mother had a, was fairly affluent and had a large home. And the church had met in her home to pray in Acts chapter 12 when Peter was in prison. And God answered their prayers and sent an angel to get Peter out of prison. You remember that? Well, this is John Mark's mother. So they're, they're both members of the church there. They are brothers in Christ, a part of the same local church attending the same prayer meetings together, doing ministry together. So there was a bond there already uh, coming from the same church. But on top of that, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul references that John Mark is Barnabas's cousin. So not only are they members of the same church, the same spiritual family, they're also members of the same physical family. They are related. They're cousins. So you can see again the tie, the connection between Barnabas and John Mark. On top of that, God look at Barnabas's personality. He's called the son of encouragement back in chapter 4, verse 36. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. You know who gave him that name? That was not his name. His name was Joseph. But it was the apostles gave Joseph the nickname of Barnabas. Why? Because they saw that his character was one that he was such an incredible encouragement to other people. They nicknamed him with the name Barnabas. Son of encouragement. He was that kind of a guy. And you can see how Barnabas lived up to his name. In Acts chapter 4, when the, some of the believers in the church at Jerusalem were poor and struggling, Barnabas encouraged them by, by selling his land and giving the money to the apostles to minister to the needs of the poor. He was an encouragement, willing to sacrifice to minister to the needs of others. Remember in Acts chapter 9, after Paul was converted up in Damascus and then makes his first trip to Jerusalem and all the believers says, no, this is the guy who was trying to arrest us and throw us in jail. And they thought that Paul was a spy and no one wanted to come near him. But Barnabas took hold of Paul, son of encouragement. 
and brought him to the elders and the apostles and, and vindicated his conversion experience and his speaking out boldly in the name of Christ when back up in Damascus. That was Barnabas. That was an encouragement to Paul and helped him to settle into the fellowship of the church there in Jerusalem. That was Barnabas. An encouragement to the Apostle Paul. And then later on, in Acts chapter 11, when uh, these Greeks get saved up in Antioch, the elders and the apostles want to send one of their trusted men to go up and check it out and make sure the Gospel was still pure. And they sent Barnabas up there. And when Barnabas saw what the Lord was doing, saving both Greeks and Jews, it says that he encouraged them all, both Jews and Greeks, to remain true to the Lord with a resolute heart. Barnabas was an encourager by nature. And then later on when that work, uh, as Barnabas stayed there in Antioch, and the work became so important, and it was far more than what Barnabas could be a part of, he went to Tarsus and found Paul and convinced Paul to come back to, to Antioch. He encouraged Paul that here is a whole field of ministry that he could labor in with great effect for the glory of the Gospel and the glory of God in the Gospel. So he encouraged Paul to come back. He was an encourager by nature. So Barnabas looked at John Mark and he said, yeah, he failed us on the first trip. But Barnabas, because he had the heart of an encourager, was quick to forgive and quick to encourage and quick to want to strengthen those who are weak. And Barnabas would have a heart for John Mark as not only his brother in the Lord from the same church, but also his from his own flesh and blood, his kin, his cousin. And on top of that, because of his nature of being an encourager, he would have wanted to give John Mark a second chance. Another opportunity to prove himself to be a worthy companion. Mark was young. He made, a, he made a mistake. But Barnabas still saw potential in this young man. Would not give up on him. Wanted, wanted to have him go along for the second trip. Praise God for men like that. And women. And may the church be blessed with many who share this kind of a spirit. Because we all need Barnabases in our life at times. Barnabas was described by Luke in another place as being a, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He was a good man. He had a heart for uh, John Mark and wanted to give him a second chance even though he had failed on the mission field. And then let's look at it from Paul's perspective. Paul said, I don't want this deserter to be on the team. Paul's ministry was clear. Remember when the Lord saved him back in Acts chapter 9, the Lord revealed to Ananias to tell Paul to go to, go to Paul and say, uh, this man is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul's ministry was to lay it all on the line. Paul knew that he had been commissioned and called into service to, to preach the Gospel and that he would suffer because of his ministry. That was made clear to him 
at the very outset. He was drafted and commissioned as the, by the King of Kings to be an officer in the front lines of the battle for the Gospel. His job was to invade the kingdom of darkness with the kingdom of light. The Gospel of light. To advance God's reign in the hearts of men. He was, the, he was designed and chosen to be the tip of the spear, if you will, to, to go forth and, and pierce the darkness with the light of Christ. But you see, to be on the front lines was dangerous to your health. You're exposed. You take the full brunt of the enemy's retaliatory strikes. And Paul was one of the great warriors of Christ. You've read of David's three mighty men. Paul was one of Christ's three mighty men. He was committed to the task with all of his heart. He would leave nothing in reserve. He would, he would hold nothing back. He would serve Christ. And so worthy was His King and Savior. So precious was the grace of God that He had received that there was nothing too great that He would be willing to sacrifice in His service to Christ. He counted all of His past religious achievements as dung compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. His life belonged totally to the Savior totally to His Master and Lord. And He could say for me to live, what is to live for you? For Paul, for me to live is Christ. That's my life. And for me to die is gain. But He looked at His life as a soldier who is totally committed to the cause. And He was willing to sacrifice it all out of a love for His Redeemer. And never did an army have such a devoted warrior who gave his body and soul in the service of his king as Christ had in the Apostle Paul. And Paul expected the same devotion from those who served by his side. Those who accepted the challenge to go with him into the battlefield. He expected the same devotion. They must count the cost. They must be willing to to pay the price as he was. And this is where John Mark faltered and failed and stumbled. Mark was invited to come along as their assistant and their servant in the first missionary journey. But he left them at Perga. After the, this is like quitting the game after the first inning. This is like after the first series of downs, the, the, the running back says, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I quit the game. And there's really no reason given for why he left. We can speculate. Some say maybe it was once they arrived in, in uh, Asia Minor that the heat of Perga in that time of year was so oppressive he just couldn't, his constitution couldn't handle it. Others say maybe it was the Gentiles, the fact that clearly Paul's ministry now is taking a Gentile spin. And maybe he thought, you know, they're just going to go to the Jews and the synagogues, but Paul is now saving Sergius Paulus, a Greek, a Gentile, and maybe that didn't sit well. We don't know. But what Paul does in verse 38 is he describes John Mark's behavior as a deserter. And it describes one, this particular word describes one who has fallen away, a backslider in other contexts. It's not, a, it's not an easy word 
In Paul's attitude towards Mark, Mark went AWOL. He abandoned his post. And Paul felt that he could not be trusted. He could not be relied on. He had broken his pledge to be a helper and a servant. He had not counted the cost. And he had put his hand to the plow and looked back. And in Paul's mind, he was a quitter. And because he was about to return back to the very cities where he had so much opposition, where he had been stoned, he's going to go back to Lystra. He's going to go back to the cities that thought he was a heretic and ran him out of town. He needed men who would be willing to stay by his side and support him, regardless of what happened to him, regardless of what persecution came his way. And he wasn't convinced that John Mark was the man. He wasn't ready to do it. He needed men who would not abandon him in his hour of need if things got tough. So there resulted this sharp disagreement in verse 39. And this expression says a lot. It was a severe argument between these two godly men, Barnabas and Paul. And the particular word sharp disagreement suggests that it was a, they got to the point of irritation. They, they provoked one another to anger. Mark had become a bone of contention between them and neither one was willing to give it up. Both were dug into their positions. In fact, if you look, for example, at verse 37, In verse 38, Luke indicates that. In verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John. And in the Greek, that's an imperfect tense, which means it's ongoing action in the past. So Barnabas didn't didn't just drop it. He kept after it. No, let's take him, let's take him, let's take him. And then in verse 38, Paul kept insisting another imperfect tense in Greek. Ongoing action in the past. I will not take him. I will not take him. I will not take him. So there's this, this argument that occurred. And neither one of them was about to drop it or give in to the other. There was no budging. Again, they were both dug in. And this is, this is sad. I wonder, you know, I, I read this and I think, I wonder how the church at Antioch was responding to this. It's like children when they see their parents arguing and fighting. You know, it's harmful. It's hurtful when they see their parents act that way in front of their kids. And I'm sure it had a negative effect upon the church to see these two godly men, these two leaders in their church quarreling and bickering and not able to resolve a conflict. It's a bad situation. And so they separated in verse 39. They separated and they each kind of went their way. Uh, there was a ministry split because they were unresolved. And apparently they just agreed to disagree. Now the disagreement was not, not over, over theology. It wasn't over the Gospel. It was over a ministry assessment of an individual. So who was right? Well, to me, it's not a black or white matter. Uh, to their credit, they did not split the church. They did divide from each other. They separated from each other to go their each different ministry way. But the church certainly survived it. But it's hard to say who was right 
and who is wrong. Because I think they can both make a case for their particular position. And I think for a lot of people, they want to have a tendency to take Paul's side or take Barnabas' side, but they're coming at it from different perspectives. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in this because we face conflicts as well in our life. And one of the lessons we need to learn is that godly men don't always agree. Godly men are not sinless men. Uh, They are human. And the old expression, the best of men or men at best, can be tweaked in saying the best of saints are still sinners. Peter still had his struggles. I mean, he and Barnabas both fell into hypocrisy in Galatians chapter 2. Paul was a man who freely acknowledged his wrestling with his own sin throughout Romans chapter 7. Godly men don't always agree. Godly men are not perfect men. They have their own struggles. And unfortunately, conflicts therefore are inevitable. Now, all conflicts are not necessarily bad. Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians that, you know, they, they, conflicts are necessary to show those who are approved at times. But conflicts can be bad when they're not handled in a biblical way. We work alongside someone at work who rubs us wrong. And they irritate us. And we have a hard time dealing with them. Sometimes people's uh, mannerisms can be irritating. And uh, they can have behavior that, that can annoy us. And sometimes it's just it's one of those things that happens. People say things or do things that offend us or hurt us or they don't cooperate with us the way we think they should or they don't or they don't see our perspective or they or they oppose us in our will or our plans and so conflicts are inevitable ken sandy in his uh book the peacemaker which i'd recommend to everyone says there are four primary causes of conflicts One of them is misunderstandings due to poor communication. A lot of marital conflicts are due to misunderstanding and poor communication. Number two, conflicts can arise from differences in values or goals or opinions or interests or expectations. And because we differ, we have conflicts. A third source of conflict is competition over limited resources. So the In a marriage situation, you quarrel over the use of money or the use of time. In a business, there can be debates and conflicts over how resources are spent or used. And number four, uh, conflicts can erupt just because of our own sin nature. Sinful attitudes and sinful habits lead to sinful words and sinful actions that can create conflict. So conflicts are there. Godly men don't always agree. And yet, how should the godly respond when they're in the midst of a conflict? Well, several things come to my mind as we try to make an application of this uh, to our own lives. There are several qualities I think we all need to have when we are facing a, uh, a conflict of some kind. The first one is we certainly need to have humility. We need to, and if we're humble in the midst of a conflict, 
we will certainly try to see the other point of view rather than just our own. This is not always easy, is it? But the Scriptures tell us to consider others as more important than yourself. In other words, I need to consider their opinion and their point of view equally important, more important than myself. I think in husbands and wives, the conflicts that occur in marriages, uh, this is very important for husbands and wives to try to understand the other person's point of view. In fact, husbands, God tells us, Peter exhorts us in 1 Peter 3.7 to live with our wives in an understanding way. So husbands, as a spiritual leader of the home and the family, is responsible to understand the insight, the point of view, the, the, the ideas of our wives and to value them because God made us different. He wired men and, and women differently. And, and the leaders should always take that into consideration in making a, a decision. And it can also help to resolve a conflict. We need to have humility. Humility will also lead us to take the log out of our own eye first. Well, I don't have a log. I see your log pretty clearly. Man, is it ever big. But you know, I don't really have, have one myself. And our tendency is to, is to need, we need to stop and listen to the words of Christ in Matthew 7. Take the log out of your eye first. You probably have a, a, a great big telephone pole in there and you don't even know it. See, you may be wrong in your opinion. You may be wrong in, in the way you're viewing the conflict. So go in humility. Examine yourself first. Is there any hypocrisy? Am I really not seeing things clearly? So humility will lead us to take the log out of our own eye. And I think this is important because my sinful response to a conflict would be self-defense. I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to defend my reasoning, my logic, my words, my standards, my rights, my point of view, I'm going to defend it. That's what we all do because we're sinners. That's what a simple heart does. When someone opposes me in one way or another, I immediately dig in and I, and I entrench myself and I will not move. And that's not good. That's not humility. We need to give preference to one another in honor. That's what Paul tells the Romans. Don't try to go out and sing a song like Frank Sinatra, you know, I did it my way. That's the only way I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it my way. We need to look at the other person's perspective. We need to take the log out of our own eye. And then when it comes to interacting over the, the area of conflict, use gentleness. Gentleness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. That's what a humble heart does. It doesn't lord it over. It uses gentleness in talking through a conflict. So we need humility. Secondly, we need love. Love is always at a premium when brethren disagree. Jesus exhorted His disciples to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If we're to love our enemies, then if I have a conflict with, a, with another brethren in the church, then I certainly ought to love them too. If I'm supposed to love my enemies, then I certainly ought to love the brethren. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If we love our enemies, then we should certainly have a heart to love one another. So what's the characteristic of love? Well, love is not provoked. It's not provoked. It doesn't, it's not easily angered. 
Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. And a lot of our conflicts is because I feel like I have been injured. Someone has said something and they have hurt me and I'm retaliating. But love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. That's why Paul exhorted the Colossians that above all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And Peter reminds us that love covers a multitude of sins. Love does that. It covers sins. So the minor infractions, the minor offenses, we ought to just walk away. Love covers a multitude of sins. And because love is not provoked, if the conflict is not easily resolved, don't just pack your bags and say, I'm out of here. Or give the, the silent treatment. I'm just not talking about it anymore. Because sadly, some people's attitude, if it's not my way, it's a highway. If we don't fix it right now and you agree with me, then I'm out of here. And some, unfortunately, leave right before the resolution could have been achieved. So don't give up on the relationship. Paul and Barnabas got to the point to where it's time to go and they left. They, they separated from one another. And I don't know, I, we don't know their hearts, we can't examine it, but a, a, a godly person needs humility in the midst of a conflict, whether it's in your family, your marriage, at work, and they also need love. And thirdly, they need forgiveness. They need a heart of forgiveness. Remember what Paul told the Ephesians, be kind to one another. Because there were some conflicts going on within the church at Ephesus. Philippi, Colossians, all these churches, they had internal conflicts at times. Paul reminds them, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Forgive them in light of the fact that you've been forgiven. Let go of the offense. Forgive others because Christ in His mercy and love and grace has forgiven me of far worse offenses than what they've done against me. See, the people that do not forgive others who have sinned against them or injured them or opposed them or whatever it might be, what happens is they get stuck with a great big harpoon. And I've used this illustration before. It's like in the old days when they would hunt whales out in the ocean. They'd take their little ship up and a whale would surface and they would ram that harpoon into the side. And it was attached to a rope and it eventually wear it down until they'd bring it alongside and kill it. And sometimes when people do things to us, their words, their comments, their actions are like harpoons. And I mean it hurts. It's sticking in our side. And what we have to do is to forgive them. And when you forgive them, you're able to pull that harpoon out and drop it into the depths of the ocean. Because if you don't forgive, you're carrying around that hurt. You're carrying around that and becomes soured and bitter. And suddenly we become, we have all these terrible attitudes towards that person and we won't forgive them. You gotta release it. You gotta forgive. Because if you don't, it will poison your soul with a bitterness that, uh, that is not good. I'm happy to report that with Paul and Barnabas, they, Later on, they were certainly on good terms. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, Paul will refer to Barnabas again. You don't hear Barnabas anymore in the book of Acts because Luke's focus is on Paul. But later on, Paul mentions Barnabas 
as being a brother on equal footing with him, do all the respect and honor that he he should have within the church. So they're on they're on good footing. So whatever the issue was, they eventually uh, resolved it. A third lesson is that, which is very encouraging, is that past failures can be reversed. Broken relationships can be mended. We see this with Paul and Barnabas and even most importantly, Paul and John Mark. About ten years later, after this division, this disagreement occurs, ten years later, Paul is in prison. He's finished his third missionary journey. He's now in prison in Rome. And guess who's with him in prison? It's John Mark. John Mark is there. And Paul includes his greetings to Philemon by saying, and oh yeah, Mark sends you his greetings. And at that same point in time, Paul not only wrote a letter to Philemon, he also wrote a letter to the Colossians. And they were probably carried by the same, the same messenger, the same mailman, if you will. And later on, or in the letter to the Colossians, this is what Paul will say about John Mark. He says, I send you my greetings and also the greetings of the brethren who are with me, including Barnabas's cousin Mark. And then Paul goes on and refers to the brethren, including John Mark, that they have proved to be an encouragement to me. And so Paul and John Mark later on, when Paul's in prison, John Mark has come and has been a real blessing to Paul and encouragement to Paul. And then finally, in Paul's last final imprisonment in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he's writing to Timothy. He'll be executed soon after he writes this letter. And he says, only Luke is with me. And then he says, pick up Mark and bring him with you because he is useful to me for service. And you find this marvelous reconciliation between the Apostle Paul and John Mark. That this former deserter now became a devoted supporter of the Apostle Paul. That he was formerly useless to Paul in ministry, now is valuable and very useful to the Apostle in his imprisonment. He who caused Paul much discouragement now is a rich source of encouragement. You see, there is hope for those who have failed through sin. There is hope for those who have engaged in moral failure through insufficient graces and they failed in a ministry or failed in, in, in a relationship or failed in a life because our failure does not mean that God has consigned us to sit forever on the sidelines. That God uses broken vessels for His purpose. There are no Humpty Dumpties in the covenant of grace. You remember the old poem of Humpty Dumpty? Sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. For all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty together again. But God can. And that's what God does. God can put the broken pieces together and then reuse that once broken vessel for His glory and for His namesake. 
so that God restored John Mark, who once was a deserter who failed so badly, and he became one of the close confidants, one of the closest encouragers and friends of the Apostle Paul, sticking with him during that time when he was in prison. And on top of that, to show you how God can restore someone who had fallen and restored them, that later on in his life, John Mark became close friends with Peter. And when it came time for the Holy Spirit to choose a fourth person to write one of the Gospels, it was John Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark. This same brother who had sinned so miserably and failed so miserably on the mission field, God uses him to write probably the first Gospel actually that was written. You see, past failures can be reversed. Broken relationships can be mended. There's no Christian who is beyond the hope of recovery no matter how bad they have fallen. There is a road back. There is a way for usefulness in the kingdom of God again. And Mark was not doomed to be labeled as a failure forever. But he was destined to live under God's protection and smile for before he had God's frown. And that just encourages us that our God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. And it also shows something very important also. That Barnabas' attitude was vindicated. At the time, John Mark was not worthy to go with Paul. But Barnabas didn't give up on him. He took him with him and worked with him and trained him and encouraged him and poured his life into him so that later on, John Mark could be the kind of man that Paul would esteem as one useful to me for ministry. See, that's the grace of God. Finally, God works out, works good out of bad situations. And then this is no excuse for their sharp disagreement and splitting ways, but in the providence of God, God ordained that out of that would come good. Because now from one missionary team, you now have two. And Barnabas and John Mark go back to Cyprus. Paul and Silas now go north back up into Galatia. So now the ministry is doubled because of what had happened. So God, to His glory, works good out of this bad situation as He's promised to do in the life of all of His children. Well, this certainly doesn't justify sin. Our failures certainly have consequences. It certainly shouldn't make us slothful in fighting against our own infirmities. But sins can be forgiven and more grace can be given. And that's an encouragement to all of us who have stumbled and faltered at times in our walk with the Lord. There is hope and grace with the Lord Jesus. Well, our greatest conflict in this life is with God. We are sinners. We are justly rebels in His sight. We are convicts. We are criminals. We have broken His laws. And we have offended a holy God by our sin. There's been a huge conflict between us. There is, there is enmity between us and God by nature. 
My sin has rebelled against God's rightful reign in my life. And His holy just wrath has also turned towards me. I deserve to be condemned and judged. The greatest conflict that we will ever have is that we are sinners. And there is this enmity, this divide, this separation that our sin has made between us and a holy God. And we are helpless to remedy that particular offense and that conflict. But God in His mercy chose to remedy it for us. He sent His only begotten Son down from heaven who lived a sinless life, who was willing out of love for four sinners who were enemies by nature to die on the cross and bear their sin and suffer the wrath of God so that they can be forgiven so that they can be reconciled and the relationship mended. What they could not do, God did through His Son. Through the outpouring of the blood of Christ, which removed the enmity, so that now, where before we were enemies and opposed one another, now there is peace. Now there is reconciliation because what God has done for us. And since our greatest conflict has been resolved by the blood of Christ, it should encourage us to go forth and know that He is able to resolve all the lesser conflicts in our life as well. But we need to close by pointing our attention and our thoughts to what Jesus did to remove the animosity, to remove the conflict, the enmity that occurred between us and God because of our sin. And to rejoice that now we have peace with God because of what Christ has done to remove the offense by bearing the punishment for all of our sins. Well, as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, I want to remind you that this is the Lord's Supper and not just the Supper of Northwest Bible Church. So we invite... Uh, each and every believer in Jesus Christ to examine your hearts and freely partake. If you've never acknowledged your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ for salvation, then we encourage you to let the elements pass you by and to think about your sin, to think about the day of judgment that's still coming, and that if that enmity is not removed, then you will stand before a judge who will condemn you so that you need to flee to Christ for forgiveness now and ask Him to remove your offense because God was totally in the right, we're totally in the wrong. That God has provided a Savior for you, but you must personally come and put your trust in Him. So at this time, if the ushers would please come forward, we will pass the bread. A bread which is a symbol for the body of Christ on the cross suffered and torn as the nails were driven into His hands as He was dying in the place of His children. And our hearts are to be drawn to Him in love and devotion as we see the, the greatness of His love for us and the peace that we have with God now. So let's pray. Father, we do thank You for removing our sin and to remove this conflict, this animosity, this division, this separation that our sin created 
and drove us out of Your presence. And Lord, there is no way back that we could actually achieve. But by Your grace, You sent Your Son who bridged the gap, who suffered in our place and bore our sin, that any sinner can find forgiveness who repents and trusts in Christ alone to save them. So thank You, Lord, for healing the gap. Thank You for drawing us together and making us one and restoring peace because of what Your Son did in dying for our sins. So receive our praise, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.